girl, you're so young and pretty And one thing I know is true You've been dead before your time is due I know Watch my daddy in bed at time Watch his hands Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this podcast, I, I do dedicate each episode to a story of Philip K. Dick, and later on I'll be looking at, at the novels in you know, probably several parts per episode. But right now we're still looking through some of many of the early stories. We're in 1953, um, we're nearing the end of 1953, with uh, the story The Planet, Planet for Transients. There's no the other, just Planet for Transients. Um, so let's uh, get right into it. Here's how, it's not the beginning of the story, it's about the first third through, but it really sums up our setting in this story. Quote, Earth was alive, thriving with activity. Plants and animals and insects in boundless confusion. Night forms, day forms, land and water types, incredible types, kinds and numbers that had never been cataloged, probably never would be. By the end of the war, every surface inch was radioactive. The whole planet sprayed and bombarded by hard radiation. All life subjected to beta and gamma rays. Most life died, but not all. Hard radiation brought mutation. At all levels, insects, plant, and animal. The normal mutation and selection process was accelerated millions of years in seconds. These altered progeny littered the earth. A crawling, teeming, glowing horde of radiation-saturated beings. In this world, only the forms which could use hot soil and breathe particle-laden air survived. Insects and animals and men who could live on a world with such a surface so alive that it glowed at night. End quote. So, we have a world here that's been devastated by war, most likely a nuclear war, but it's also teeming with life. And I don't know if we've seen that before in, in science fiction. I'm sure we have, but... It's not the classical image of the post-apocalyptic, post-war world that we normally get of, of like devastated landscapes and the, the end of life. Um, it's very different. In fact, Earth in this context is full of life. And I think it's a very interesting um, context for, for the story. So Planet for Transients was first published in Fantastic Universe in their October-November issue of 1953. Uh, and you can get this in the second volume of the Collected Works of Philip K. Dick, though we can remember it for you wholesale volume. It's a short story, just about 10 pages, um, but it, it's kind of interesting. It's it's really, is I think it might be our first really clear look at the post-human. Um, really starting in 1954 and into 1955, Dick started to really explore the themes of, of post-humanism. His most classic post-human was the precog, um, but in stories, he, he, he kind of actually gets a little bit deeper into the posthuman that he does in his novels. Uh, and a lot of his thinking about this is going on in the mid, mid to late 1950s. He's got posthumans uh, who have all kinds of superpowers, like, like kind of the, the X-Men style image. But he's got others that are like hive-minded, creepy crawlies that live underground. He's got others... Um, that have mind control so there's a lot of interesting different 
images of the post family. One thing they have in common, they have in common though, is their incapacity to really interact with and work with and live alongside normal humans. Um, now, sometimes this precox can do this, but they're always kind of outsiders and they have a really different point of view with um, the world. And they really don't jive with how the rest of the world works. And I think that's kind of a Phil Dickism, is the the post-human as as not human not just an extension of our humanity like in the x-men comics and movies yeah they're they got all these superpowers but they're not fundamentally different emotionally intellectually you know they're just they're pretty much like us they have our same kind of grievances and pettiness and desires dicks post-humans tend to be in a different realm entirely almost like they are a real other species a true post-human but anyways, into this story, the planet for transients. Um, here we have Trent. He's he's kind of the old human, the the human that's not really equipped to survive on the surface of a planet like this after a war. He has an oxygen tank. He's checking counters. He's walking through an area that's just teeming with life, and I, I described a little bit of it there. It's just overrun with life. Now through the radio, he reports back to his base that he's heading up towards some ruins that he sees ahead. He guesses, and, and we sort of believe him, that these are the ruins of New York City. All right, so we got this world that's almost like a, this jungle everywhere, but you have these ruins of the old cities there, and it's, I don't know, if it, I don't know if the image in his head is the, like, Mayan ruins kind of covered with, covered with life, but that's kind of how I see it. Trent is warned that his uh, about his supplies and warned against eating eating any of the wild plants that he may run across. Trent is approached by two males with blue gray skin, each with six or seven fingers and additional joints in in those hands. They speak a common language though, as and they ask if he's a human. The males are named Jackson and Earl Potter. Trent tells Jackson that he's from a camp in Pennsylvania with a couple dozen others. Trent also explains that his people who survived the war did so by hiding in mines and growing their own food in tanks and with and running things off electric generators. Jackson and Earl Potter are delighted because this means that humans have survived the war despite the prediction of others. So we already got an important point here that the post-humans, who these obviously are, talk about them as humans. So they have a different identification for themselves they don't see themselves as human and they're surprised that some humans survived all right but then after the conversation trent has to go back because he lacks breathable oxygen i guess his tank is running though we learn that there are many new forms of life on earth since the war the entire surface is radioactive and most of the life that had been there died out but a new life survived and developed very accustomed to the radiation actually flourished evolution has sped up and some of these life forms are things like flying rabbits, and we have blue-skinned giants, which seem to have been once toads. Um, we got Trent meditates on the precariousness of his situation. Uh, he was actually seeking out other human settlements, not post-humans. His own settlement is powered by human-generated electricity, essentially. Uh, I don't know if there's people on bicycles like in that Black Mirror movie, but it's something like that, human-generated electricity. Oxygen and food is running low. And they need to find another human settlement if they're going to survive. Trent is captured by a tribe of bugs, who are a group of humanoid insects that have also evolved during the war. So they're kind of the evolution of, of insect life, or maybe they're humans that became insectoid. 
They capture Trent in hopes of claiming a reward. And soon the bug tribe is attacked by runners. Now these are small people who run on kangaroo legs. Um, and again, are they kangaroos that evolved into the humans or are they humans that evolved kangaroo legs? It's probably the latter. The runners inform Trent that there's a tribe of humans in Canada that they had contact with but have disappeared. So he follows their lead to the north but finds the settlement abandoned as the runners told him it would be. He contacts his community, tells them that there was a settlement, but it's been empty for a few weeks. And while they're sending aid to Trent, it's going to take a couple days, and Trent's oxygen will only last one day. So while waiting for either a rescue or his death, Trent sees a rocket landing nearby. All right, the man who gets out of this uh, rocket ship is named Norris. And he asks Trent about his mine and if they're survivors. And he tells him that, you know, there's this settlement with about 30 people, including some people who are out looking like he is. And Norris tells them that they can, about take, they can take half of the settlement out, picking up the rest in another week or so. Um, Norris is from the survivors of this Canadian settlement he found, which uh, left Earth on a refurbished bomb that they used to leave. So we got the repurposing of a device of war for uh, a device of peace. We've seen this before in stories like The Variable Man, and we'll see it a lot in, in the novel The Zap Gun. We find out that these people had resettled on Mars, but they have plans to find better locations in outer space. Reclaiming Earth is not an option because that would mean the death of all the species that have evolved since the war. You can't have, you can't reclamate Earth to their environment without killing all this new life that has emerged. Right, so it's it's almost an ecological either or. You can't really adapt. Humans can't adapt to this climate, but you know, to to make the Earth habitable again would be genocide essentially. And Earth no is no longer for humans. Essentially, that's what Norris tells him. To survive, humans must move on. The war have transformed humans from the owners of the planet into transients, into tourists. So in my view, this is a really wonderful story. It's got a great message that somehow humans, through their violence, through war, have lost their claim, their right to own Earth. But that's not necessarily the end of the human story because there is a frontier. Right, so we have another example of the frontier. And I talk a lot about this in my episode on Philip Dick's philosophy of, of history. It's such a nice story because it also shows humans and posthumans mostly getting along. Yeah, he's captured and yeah, there's fighting and conflicts, but they're able to communicate. Uh, they're able to get along. But just as amazing to me is it shows communities after a war getting along as well. Uh, two different factions. We have communities that are largely stable and work together and cooperate. The standard post-apocalyptic motif that I grew up with and the one that I think is still dominant is that at the end of civilization, you find the unleashing of brutality. It's a very Hobbesian view of human nature. And I think it's really saturated post-apocalyptic writing. Now, yeah, we can find ex exceptions to this, but by and large, I think this is what we get in most post-apocalyptic stories, whether it's the game series Fallout or it's the novel The Road by Cormac McCarthy, the comic book series The Walking Dead, or on and on. I even have an anthology of, of post-apocalyptic literature called The Wastelands. I used it for a science fiction literature course I, I once taught. Um, but there, like most of the stories have, have very, very bleak perspectives of human nature. 
so you you know sometimes dystopian literature does the same kind of thing that that you know the power of utopian literature is that it believes humans can create better worlds right i think that's what's so promising about it and that's one thing i one reason i think science fiction has this radical imaginary and emancipatory potential but dystopian literature tends to say you know no matter what you do it's going to be bad right it's going to suck no matter how good our technology goes you know we're going to use it in bad ways you know and i think that is a very sad and bleak and i don't necessarily think it's true uh, i just saw logan a few months ago and yeah it's one of the best of the x-men films but you know it's just such a bleak image of of human nature and what our future could be even with technologies right i mean that's what's so sad about it is even with mutants the world is still gonna you know suck pretty sad if we watch it if you didn't find it sad I, I found it not not because you know logan dies wolverine dies but just because of the image he gives of the world the assumption of all this stuff is that without civilization to restrain us we are brutes and maybe we're brutes anyways and that are then the dystopian literature seems to assume that we are brutes and the systems we create will be brutish no matter what I'll say a lot more on this over the course of this series, especially with novels like Dr. Blood Money. But essentially, I think Dick doesn't believe that the destruction of society necessarily brings out the worst in us, that it can bring out the best in us. It can increase our needs and inclination to, to solidarity and community and cooperation. And we have that here. Even between the post-humans and the humans, you have a bit of cooperation, even though they're so different. But even between the human groups, you know, the fact that Norris sends back rockets to to find other people, right? You can't imagine the people in The Walking Dead doing that, really, going back for survivors from an, from an opposing clan group. The central theme of this story, of course, is post-humanism and the future of Earth without us. Um, and I, I think there was a book written, like a, a science book popular science book written kind of earth after us or something that plays with the idea what would happen if humanity just disappeared one day right and the, the presumption of many writers and scientists is that life would th would would thrive on this planet without us but this is an uncomfortable idea but it's common you know people think about this from time to time right especially the climate change and and things like that but it was pretty innovative in the 1950s. Um, as a cliche about apocalyptic literature states, it is easier to imagine the end of the world or the end of humanity than the end of capitalism, for instance, right? Um, and people like Slavoj Zizek have written about this and thought about this. Why is it that we are full of post-apocalyptic literature, stories about the end of humanity or stories of the last man or whatever, but stories that imagine a slightly different economic system are seen as fantasy? You know, it, it shows kind of maybe the limit of our imagination. It's really fun, I think, to to face an Earth pop replaced by post-humans. Uh, and that's what we have here, too. Um, Post-apocalyptic literature, the apocalypse always requires survivors, usually. Right. The, the re, those humans who refuse to let go of the planet to 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 they're gonna you know earth's gonna come out of their cold dead hands right they're gonna hold on to the end and hope to rebuild and hope to recreate it but here we have a very a lot of ennui among the humans who realize this planet's not for them and and let it go like they're the good parents maybe who are willing to step aside for their children 
The post-humans are in fact the children of humanity, being products of, of the post-war environment. Everything living on Earth is there because humans fought a war. In that sense, humanity, through its violence, were the parents, right? Now, we don't have to go too far to imagine that many children are products of, of dysfunctional relationships, wars, if you will, uh, between men and women. So there's some tr truth to that, I suppose. Now, if only more parents thought like Norris does at the end of the story, this idea that, you know, we need to move out of the way for our children, right? What, you know, it's, it's rather sad to think about, but, you know, we're not fully free until our parents pass away, right? We always have that burden of, of them. Now, of course, there's a way we can get our freedom without our parents passing away, and that is when parents let go of, of their dreams for their children, their ambitions, um, and even more broadly, economic sense, give up their positions in society, right? If you look at the people who run our, our societies across the world, they tend to be really old people, right? And we don't often listen to our children. We have very, voting ages are quite late, 18 or something. Some, in tw Taiwan, I think it's not until 21 that, or, or 19 or 20 or something that you can vote. It's later. And our leaders are all old and, you know, pretty ancient, Look at Congress in the United States. It, you know, imagine what world we would have if we if those people did pass on their authority to to younger people. Quote: This is what Norris says at the end. Quote: Earth is alive; it's teeming with life, growing wildly in all directions. We're one form, the old form. To live here, we'd have to restore the old conditions, the old factories, the balance of life as it was 350 years ago. A colossal job. If we succeeded, if we managed to cool Earth, none of this would remain. So I submit this is the real story, the real theme of the planet for transients. It is a warning against conservatism. It's a warning against the orientation of our society should be the values of the last generation, of the old. We should be doing the opposite. It requires a difficult task of setting aside what we have, our position, our authority, our ideas, giving them to the younger, maybe more foolish, maybe more reckless, maybe more violent, maybe even more irrational than us. But, you know, they're still children and they still have to grow, but they don't necessarily have to grow with our values in our, in our head. Sustaining the old is simply too destructive and ultimately it will destroy whatever potential there is uh, in the young. So that's what I think this story is about, but uh, maybe you got something else out of it. Um, I would love to hear what you have to say about it, so leave your comments or, or leave a review on iTunes. Uh, it would really help me out. Um, but thanks so much. I, I'll come back in a little bit with another episode. Um, but if you enjoyed this, please rate, subscribe, share, and I'll see you uh, with the next Philip Kiddick story.